Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, simply everything you can possibly think of, like radiators, pride and dandruff. Ooh, Ooh we are beginning to put the radiators on in the Daybell household, albeit that the gas prices are soaring through the roof. So I think we should do something on radiators, maybe on pride, or we could do shoes, snooze, booze... The blues, who's, and the bruise. Oh, and we should do something on bruises, I think. Yeah, that's good. Bruising. Yeah. Bruises. And uh, our, my recent suggestion today is that we would do something on, because of the popularity of the squid game, we're going to do something on debt, mm. and we're also going to do something on squids, which I'm hugely looking forward to. Squids. I love squid. Delicious to <clears throat> I love squid. Delicious Yeah, yeah to I love squid. I- I love Squid as well. It's going to allow me to talk about um, sea monsters and the history of sea monsters, which is one of my favourite subjects, which I talked a lot about in our episode on sharks, uh, which you all need to go back and listen to. If you haven't heard that one, it's quite fun. Um, You'll probably... uh, For the the moment, we will be following... (laughs) We're so carried away with everything that we're forgetting forgetting the order of everything. However, for the moment, before we get to, you will be wondering, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining... How those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of cowboys inspired by the brilliant Netflix film The Harder They Fall is in fact all about race and ethnicity. It's about black cowboys in the Wild West. It's about gunslingers, medieval chivalry in the jewel, Victorian honour codes and much, much more. Or that the history of greed, did you know, is in fact all about... The Seven Deadly Sins and Dante's Divine Comedy. It's about Francis Bacon's essay of riches. It's about feasting and Christmas at the court of Henry VIII. And it's also about the history of eating competitions. And also <laughs> Bernard Mandeville, bees, coffee drinking and Balzac. Who knew, Sam? <laughs> it was a tremendously good fun episode to both research and record, I can tell you that. You're probably wondering who is telling you all of this stuff. Let me tell you of my fellow presenter that if history were a forest poised to become home to more than half of the world's animal and plant species, this man would be the rain. Falling from the clouds of the present, bringing that historical wilderness to life with his research and writing, falling in sheets from the sky. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, hello. And you may well, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a rain-related historian, now you've got to be very careful in your listening here, he'd only be the exact opposite of Michael Fish. <laughs> That well-known TV weatherman of the historical world. So preeminent are his skills at forecasting the future of history. Unlike Mr Fish, who a few hours before the great storm of 1987 broke on the 15th of October 1987, said during a forecast... Earlier on today, apparently a woman rang the BBC and said she'd heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, people, don't worry, there isn't. How wrong he was. This was a storm that was one of the worst storms to hit the coast. Lots of rain, of course, causing record damage and killing 
19 people. You're very unlike that, Sam. Um, (laughs) You're also unlike Michael Fish because you are so elegant in your sartorial and historical attire. No kipper ties for you, methinks. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, (laughs) We are doing rain. You've probably worked that out. Uh, Interesting subject, I think. Um, And my initial thoughts, James, were just how unpleasant it is to be caught in the rain when you're not prepared for it. And I kind of actually have two responses to that. One is is you either go, oh, it's all very miserable, or you just embrace it and get soaking and then um, plough through. What do you tend to do in the rain? Um... It's very similar. I I used to carry an umbrella when I was younger, uh, when I was at school, uh, and gave it up. Uh, And now I just get absolutely soaked and just go through it. (laughs) However, I have just purchased two umbrellas um, to help me out with the rain. I I, I would have paid a lot of money to see you walking around school with an umbrella. Were there many other kids with umbrellas? It was a big trend for umbrellas, those big golfing umbrellas. Uh, everyone, everyone wore them. However, this was in the this was in the southeast, and not in the tough north or the the hardy southwest. However, when I was thinking about the history of rain, I thought about it in in all sorts of different ways. I thought about the work that I've been doing with my daughters in homeschooling on the history of the water cycle. So, thinking about oh, yeah. it from that from that perspective, I also thought about the material culture. Of... Do you mean this right? Do you mean the way that the uh, our, our understanding of the water cycle has changed over time? Yes, I mean exactly that, Sam Willis. Mm. I mean Sci- exactly the that. Yeah. The, the science behind it, the natural world, and and our understanding of rain. And I'll come to that in a in a little bit later. But I was also thinking about the material culture of rain. So the raincoat, galoshes, wellies, the umbrella, of course, or manifestations of rain. Puddles, floods, drains, drain pipes, how one deals with rain, monsoons, for example, and sort of, you know, erratic downpours, and how that changes according to season and climate and where you are in the world. But also cultural associations with rain. The Brits are utterly obsessed with rain, constantly talking about the weather, partly because we are in such a rainy, dreary country most of the time. Also, Wimbledon and rain stop play at, at Lords, that kind of thing. But also thinking about rain and pollution, so acid rain, things that come down in, in the rain, weather forecasting and raining things, raining cats and dogs. And I should be talking a little bit about the etymology of raining cats and dogs. That's I've, I've covered a few of those things. Um, the acid rain I hadn't really thought about, but if I do know that if anyone wants a good example of it, all you've got to do is go and look at the west front of Exeter Cathedral, um, which has these most magnificent carvings, and they're made out of beer stone, which is a um, it's a chalk limestone outcropping in the middle of the uh, Jurassic Coast, except what it's actually in the middle of the Triassic Coast, so that's the bit from Exmouth all the way uh, sort of up to Lyme Regis, where, where the cliffs are red because they're incredibly old, 250 million years or so. But there's this bit in the middle uh, around the village of Beer, uh, which is lovely, you should all go and visit, where there's a, there's an outcropping of chalk limestone and it's in the Beer Quarry Caves that are lots of the really, really beautiful limestone um, that was uh, used to build medieval cathedrals all over the country. Um, so Exeter Cathedral, uh, Norwich Cathedral, um, the Tower of London. Uh, Westminster Abbey is another one. Um, it came from beer quarry caves and people working, I don't know, 14 hours a day in the dark with flickering tallow candles. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, the best example of it is there's a beautiful, beautiful um, chalky limestone on the front of Exeter Cathedral with this amazing carved screen. And you can see how they have all, they're all sort of melted a bit or, or like a, a sad sandcastle, which has become a little bit wet with a wave going past it. So the features of all of the many, many carvings are not quite there. And it's proof of just how uh, acid rain uh, can damage, um, damage our heritage. Bit of spontaneous architecture for you there, James. Goodness me, Sam, that's terrific. Now, where are you <laughs> going to, where are you going to take us on your, on your journey? Or would you like me uh, to well, start? I- no, it's right. I was going to uh, South America, basically. Um, I, my, my initial thoughts are, were about discomfort in rain. And um, what really made me think about it was when I was 
uh, rowing down the Grand Canyon. We were recreating the first ever voyage down the Grand Canyon for the BBC and Discovery. Uh, if you haven't seen that, do check out Operation Grand Canyon, which is on. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's fantastic. There was a moment where uh, the boat guide, the boat guides, suddenly went a bit quiet and looked at the sky and then started taking their clothes off, and we were like, "What the hell is going on here?" And uh, the heavens absolutely opened, and there was me groveling around trying to put on a, um, a waterproof, and then becoming completely miserable, and 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 damp and wet and everything. And the the, the guides who obviously knew knew the Grand Canyon were. Uh, stripped down to pretty much nothing, got absolutely soaking. Then the sun came out, and then they were dry and happy again. Uh, meanwhile, I, I was sitting in wet clothes, and I suddenly learned of the, uh, the the local understanding of what to do with rain and and how to deal with it. And that made me think about the explorers of the early rainforests, so sixteenth um, century explorers in South America. Um, some of the, the best one, uh, one one of the best ones to think about is Francisco de Orellana. He's a fascinating guy, Spanish explorer, born around 1490. He's the first person from the Western world to navigate the entire Amazon, uh, which is some achievement. And uh, he joined Francisco Pizarro's army in Peru in 1533. And uh, initially they, they fought against other Spaniards, Diego del Amagro, uh, one of numerous civil wars fought between conquistadors, which is something that actually doesn't get as much interest in history as it should i think um someone should write a uh, write a history about the, the the spanish civil wars in south america so much of the focus is on uh, the spanish fighting um the the natives who lived there but they spent a lot of time fighting each other anyway um orellana had a wonderful time there made good friends with pizarro eventually um he gets to go on an expedition with pizarro's half brother called gonzalo and they start in quito uh, up in the the, the Andes Mountains in Ecuador. And what they do is they try and this is this is on one of the many hunts for El Dorado, the city of gold, and um, they can't find it. Unsurprisingly, um, they were attacked a, a lot by locals. They were uh, uh, riddled by diseases. They were left starving. Half of the expedition was wiped out within just a few short weeks of the beginning of the expedition. But to make matters worse, what happened with Orellana and him and maybe fifty of his men become separated. Uh, so the other half go back to Quito and Ecuador, but Orellana basically has only only way out is to keep going down the river. So he carries on down, travels down the river, and the group make it all the way to Venezuela, having crossed the entire continent. It is some fairly serious achievement. Uh, his diaries and descriptions have been published of what he went through, and uh, it's fascinating to see how the Spanish... Um, kind of reacted to their new environment. Here's an extract. In this province of Quijos, which is north of Quito, many warlike Indians sallied forth against Gonzalo, but when they beheld the multitude of Spaniards and horses, they quickly retired and were seen no more. A few days afterwards, there was such an earthquake that many houses in the village where Gonzalo's party were resting were thrown down. The earth opened in many places. There was lightning and thunder, insomuch that the Spaniards were much astonished. At the same time, such torrents of rain fell that they were surprised at the difference between that land and Peru. After suffering these inconveniences for forty or fifty days, they commenced the passage of the snowy cordillera, where the snow fell in such quantities and it was so cold that many Indians were frozen to death, because they were so lightly clad. The Spaniards, to escape from the cold and snow of that inclement region, left the swine and provisions behind them, intending to seek some Indian village. But things turned out contrary to their hopes, for having passed the Cordillera, they were much in want of provisions, as the land they came to was uninhabited. They made haste to pass through it, and arrived at a province and village called Sumaco, on the skirts of a volcano where they obtained food. But... During two months it did not cease to rain for a single day, so that the Spaniards received great injury and much of their clothing became rotten. So James, a lovely little example there of just how the conquistadors, the Spaniards, uh, were, were, were surprised and horrified by the amount of rain. So mentions there of it raining every day for two months and again before that uh, for 50 days. And another thing I found really interesting actually was the use of rain. Um, this extract's brilliant. And this is all about them catching turtles to survive. 
But although they cannot preserve their food for a very long time, they are not wanting an industry to procure fresh meat throughout the winter, which, though it is not so palatable as the above, is more wholesome. For this purpose, they make large enclosures surrounded by poles and completed inside so as to form lakes of little depth, which always retain the rainwater. So what they're doing here is essentially making uh, little little lagoons or little lakes um, by capturing the rainwater. And they use these to keep turtles in which they capture. Having finished these uh, lagoons, at the time when the turtles go out to lay their eggs on the beach. The Indians also leave their houses and, hiding themselves near the places most frequented by the turtles, wait until the creatures come forth and begin to occupy themselves in constructing a cave in which to deposit eggs. Then the Indians come out and station themselves at the part of the beach by which the turtles have to make their retreat to the water, and falling upon them suddenly in a short time become masters of a great many, with no other trouble than turning them on their backs, thus rendering them unable to move. In this way, they keep them until they have pierced holes in all their shells and strung them together. Then they get to their canoes and tow the turtles without any trouble, until they have deposited them in the enclosures which they had prepared. So there they are, James. They're basically making a little kind of turtly prison, uh, sort of a, a shallow lake made out of rainwater. So they're using the rainwater. That's what the uh, the, the natives are doing. They're using the rainwater to um, keep the turtles alive so they can then eat throughout the winter. So two great examples there from the diaries of Francisco de Orellana, a Spanish conquistador from the 16th century. Sam, that was superb. And it almost sort of se- sort of seamlessly rifts into something that I'm going to talk about now. I'm going to end up talking about rain dances and and oh. prayers and prayers for rain but i'm going to start with cop 26 which is all around us <laughs> at the moment several weeks people the leaders of the world are all up in glasgow people are flying in all over the place from all over the place and they're talking about the about global warming and the climate crisis that we have on at the moment indeed colleagues from my own university the university of plymouth uh, were there last week uh, giving uh, demonstrations and talks and we're very interested in a systems thinking approach to the climate crisis in other words what this means and this is very good for historians everything is joined up so you can't just concentrate on one thing everything needs to be joined up so you need to start thinking about how uh, the government works and about legislation you need to start thinking about people's behavior and psychology you need to start thinking about education you need to have a look at big business and industry you need to rethink how markets work you re- need to rethink about how transportation works so all of this has got me sort of thinking about rain uh, and the absence of rain in particular uh, about you know, at this at this at this very important time. So this led me to read a rather interesting book uh, by a journalist called Cynthia Barnett called Rain, a natural and cultural history. And this is absolutely fantastic. And it really is a, a cultural history of the world's relationship with rain. And it starts by thinking about the climate crisis that we have. Um, and this is the idea that this is the idea that the U.S. Senate in 2014 um, rejects the scientific consensus that humans are causing global warming. And and in the book, um, the author uh, Cynthia Barnett, you know, describes this, and I'll just read this: "Those who dismiss science in the 21st century are in danger of repeating." the mistakes of the Brits who called ship forecasting black magic in a time when shipwrecks took the lives of thousands of sailors. Yeah, so this is uh, one, one for you there, Sam. So this is, you know, we, we defy this kind of scientific knowledge at our peril. And this then leads her to go on and think about the kinds of relationships that people had with rain. And she starts by uh, the book spans four billion years. So she's talking about, you know, the way in which the oceans were made. She also talks about the 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 sort of creation of the Earth. And the Earth was not the only um, planet with water 
on it in our in our solar system. If you think about Mars and Venus, they both had water too, but the oceans vaporized into space. While what's distinct about the Earth is that um, it can take it keeps its life giving water, and so this is what allows for you know, humanity to to survive, human life uh, and and animal life to and plant life to to survive. The book also treats the relationship that different cultures, different times and different places have had with rain. So if you think about ancient Rome, they have uh, its rain god um, and Jupiter, Pluvius. Um, the Aztecs sacrificed their young children to a rain god, Thaloc. Um And if you think about the way throughout history... Rain has been seen as something that is important, and particularly, uh, particularly storms and particularly portents of doom and those kinds of things. It's played a really important part. Take, for example, King James the Sixth of Scotland uh, in 1589, and this is all sort of wrapped up with his belief in witchcraft. He believed that su- that storms were summoned by witches that prevented his bride, uh, Anna of Denmark, from arriving on Scottish shores uh, to marry him. So there, there's always a sort of there's always been this sort of sense that bad weather and rain uh, has led to superstition, um, and we can see this in more modern times. Uh, in certainly in America, uh, think of Thomas Jefferson. For example, you know, a very famous um, individual, uh, to say the least. Uh, this was a man who built his home in Monticello. We've talked about him uh, in the past. And he is somebody who is is upset, was obsessed with measuring rain uh, as a way of, of, of you know, of thinking, thinking about this superstitiously, you know, and, and wanting and wanting and wishing for rain um, in the 1890s. Um, we see something being passed in the U.S. Congress that persuades people to invest in rainmaking experiments. And basically what you have is a guy called Charles Benjamin Farwell, uh, who's a senator from Illinois and who owned you know, massive territories in Texas. He pushes through a bill um, to fund um, rain concussion trials which is basically where scientists who have been discredited bomb the skies to try and make it rain. And this actually is something that people have believed in for quite some time. But as I said, the, the, the science behind it was, was, was discredited. So there is this sort of sense in which people are trying to make it rain because rain is so important for crops and for civilization. If we move from from those kind of literate sources and that sort of Western um, cultures to indigenous cultures, we can see how rainmaking is a very important part of various uh, cultures around the world. And one of the most famous is North American, um, Native Americans, uh, and particularly the rain dances that were performed in southern Western United States. Um, And a really brilliant depiction of this is in a painting which I sent you through courtesy of email, Sam, by a famous uh, American artist, adventurer, um, uh, George Catlin, uh, who specialised in painting uh, Native Americans of the Old West. And it is a, a, a painting called Rainmaking Among the Mandan. And it's dated... 1837 to 1839. It's in the Smithsonian American Art Museum and it's a beautiful oil on canvas. And what you have is you've got these sort of oval, um, sort of what what look like teepees, but they're not the sort of travelling teepees. They're much more domed uh, than that. And on the top of it, well, you've got the, 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 the sort of tribe members around and on the top of it, one of these um, dwellings, stands uh, a young uh, Native American brave uh, holding what looks like um, uh, a bow uh, with feathers on it and he seems to be performing a rain dance. And this was something that Catelyn was really, really interested in, in particular, you know, the the role of, of individuals, medicine men, to perform these 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 dances, to volunteer, to stand on their, their lodges, 
all day, um, basically to command the rain to, to come down on them. But it's not just Native American societies where people try to call on the rain to rain. Uh, as it were, rainmaking rituals. But it's also in, in African societies, and we can also see it in... Um, we can also see it in Muslim societies, where there is a, a rain prayer. And the relevance here is that in Islamic prophetic tradition, um, there's an example in the Quran where Muhammad uh, was delivering a sermon in the mosque uh, and was visited uh, by somebody who who implored him to pray uh, for rain to fall because the men and the cattle uh, around suffered from a lack of water. And Muhammad, in response, um, makes this prayer to God, and lo and behold, uh, it, it rains. And then and then Muhammad then prays to God uh, in order to stop this torrential torrential rain. And from this, this ritual has gone into uh, Islamic tradition. So there we are, Sam. There is a couple of examples of how we go from COP26 through uh, an understanding of rain and our relationship uh, to rain through various traditions for rainmaking. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. rituals. Amazing. I did really like that picture of uh, the Mandan picture. Um, amazing. Uh, I, I love his feathers. This, this chap standing on top of his hut, uh, calling up to the sky, um, you know, just stretching back. He's got a very interesting bow. Uh, it looks like a recurved bow. Uh, uh, which obviously has its own history. Anyway, with everyone sitting around, all with feathers in their hair, also looking up and staring up at the sky. I think that was that's, that's a really wonderful picture. Um, I wanted to talk a little about uh, Alexander von Humboldt, having spoken about the Spanish conquistadors. I think that the, the whole history of South America, get, there's so much focus on uh, the Spanish, the conquistadors and the violence and, and um, the, the terrible cultural uh, disasters that happened there because of the Spanish um, conquistadors and w wiping out the native populations by introducing diseases and also with their violence, their search for, for wealth and for gold. Um, it's, it's, there are so many um, terrible aspects to that story. I think it's a shame that they get so much attention. Um, and one really good corrective for that is to look at the history of Alexander von Humboldt, who's a really wonderful person, fascinating individual. 18th and 19th century Prussian, he's a geographer, naturalist and, and an explorer. And he travelled extensively through Latin and South America with um, a friend of his, the Aim, uh, friend of his, Aim Jacques Bonpland. And they collected a huge variety of flora and fauna, made significant discover discoveries, and they... I mean, it's an amazing sentence, but then completing the extensive mapping of South America, um, some you know, really, really extraordinary achievement. 
and his writings nowadays are gaining a lot of interest and a lot of focus because he was among more than anything else a real citizen of the world is probably the way to describe him um he feels quite contemporary in his awareness of the natural world around him um his interest in science as well and uh, i think he is going to become a profoundly influential guiding force for the present day. James, you're talking about uh, what's going on with with, uh, COP up in Glasgow. And it's figures like von Humboldt, I think, who are really going to... um, A light's going to shine on them, um, I think, over the next few years as people look back in the past to see to see who who was who lived and was was really immersed in their world and in the environment around them. Um, one of the greatest examples of von Humboldt is in Venezuela. He sees the effects of monoculture, deforestation. He talks about harmful human-induced climate change at a very early time. And he was super famous in the English-speaking world. It's quite funny now sort of saying, you need to think about von Humboldt. Everyone needs to know about him. Um, but it was the fact that he was forgotten is actually all to do with the First World War, lots of anti-German sentiment, and um, and a lot of famous German figures in the past were uh, not just ignored; they were condemned to to a, a banished past. Um, in Cleveland, one great example, um, they celebrated Humboldt's centennial in 1859, but at the outbreak of the First World War, they burnt all the German books in their library. Um, so there's a, it's really interesting thinking about how and why we might have forgotten about someone so important. I particularly love his account paddling down the Orinoco and the surrounding river networks. And he's paddling for 1,400 miles for 75 days deep in the rainforest where few um, Europeans had ever been before. It's an extraordinary story and plenty of uh, terrifying um, encounters with jaguars and crocodiles and he later travels through the Andes, um, the harshest landscape you can imagine. And uh, that's the, the link with uh, Francisco de Orellana, who I read out a little bit before. Um, so in comparison, here we've got 17th, 18th centuries, uh, sorry, 18th, 19th centuries. So hundreds and hundreds of years after the Spanish conquistadors. And you've got von Humboldt exploring. <clears throat> Opposite the cavern of Bermudez, two spacious caverns open into the crevice of Cuchivano, from which at times flames rush out. They may be seen at a great distance in the night. The adjacent mountains are illuminated by them, and judging by the elevation of the rocks above which these fiery exhalations ascend, we should be led to think that they rise several hundred feet. This phenomenon was accompanied by a subterraneous dull and long-continued noise at the time of the last great earthquake of Cumana. It is observed chiefly during the rainy season, and the owners of the farms opposite the mountain of Cuchivano assert that the flames are become more frequent since December 1797. In vain we attempted in an herbalization we made at Rinconada to penetrate into the crevice, wishing to examine the rocks that had seemed to contain in their bosom the cause of these extraordinary conflagrations. The strength of vegetation, the interweaving of the lianas and thorny plants hindered our progress. Happily, the inhabitants of the valley themselves felt a warm interest in our researches, less from the fear of a volcanic explosion than because their imagination was struck with the idea that the Risco del Colchivano contained a gold mine. And although we expressed our doubts of the existence of gold in the secondary limestone, they wanted to know what the German miner thought of the richness of the vein. This goes on and on, but it's his description of exploring this uh, this this fascinating mine um, during the rainy season and and how they coped with it and um, and and all of the observations they thought about about the the rain in particular the mud and how people coped with it at the time and um, the way he immersed himself in the environment James I think is uh, is fascinating and an important lesson to us all superb stuff Sam from there I'm going to take us to raining cats and dogs via a wonderful poem by Jonathan Swift, that 18th century uh, Anglo-Irish poet, essayist, political pamphleteer, uh, famous for Modest Proposal, Gulliver's Travels, Tale of a Tub, um, all of those kinds of things. And the, the title of this poem is A Description of a City Shower. Careful observations may foretell the hour by sure prognostics when to dread a shower 
while rain depends, the pensive cat gives o'er her frolics and pursues her tail no more. Returning home at night, you'll find the sink. Strike your offended sense with double stink. If you be wise, then go no far to dine. You'll spend in coach hire more than save in wine. A coming shower, your shooting corns presage. Old aches throb, your hollow tooth will rage. Sauntering in coffee houses, dullman seen. He damns the climate and complains of spleen. Meanwhile the south, rising with dabbled wings, A sable cloud athwart the welkin flings, That swilled more liquor than it could contain, And like a drunkard gives it up again. Brisk Susan whips her linen from the rope, While the first drizzling shower is borne aslope. Such is that sprinkling which some careless queen Flirts on you from her mop, but not so clean. You fly, invoke the gods, then turning stop to rail. She sh singing still whirls on her mop. Not yet the dust had shunned the unequal strife, but aided by the wind, fought still for life, and wafted with its foe by violent gust. Twas doubtful which was rain and which was dust. Ah! Where must needy poet seek for aid when dust and rain at once his coat invade? Sole coat where dust cemented by the rain erects the nap and leaves a mingled stain. Now in contiguous drops the flood comes down, threatening with deluge this devoted town. To shops in crowds the daggled females fly, pretend to cheapen goods but nothing buy. The Templar spruce, while every sprout's a brooch, Stays still, tis fair, yet seems to call a coach. The tucked-up seamstress walks with hasty strides, While seams run down her oiled umbrella's sides. Here various kinds, by various fortunes led, Commence acquaintance underneath the shed. Triumphant Tories and desponding Whigs Forget their feuds and join to save their wigs. Boxed in a chair, the bow impatient sits, while spouts run clattering o'er the roof by fits, and ever and anon with frightful din the leather sounds he trembles from within. So when Troy chairman bore the wooden steed, pregnant with Greeks impatient to feed those bully Greeks, who, as the moderns do, instead of paying chairman, run them through. Lacoon struck the outside with his spear, and each imprisoned hero quaked for fear. Now from all parts the swelling kennels flow, and bear their trophies with them as they go. Filth of all hues and odours seem to tell what street they sailed from by their sight and smell. They, as each torrent drives and rapid force from Smithfield or St Pulchre's shaped their course, and in huge confluence joined at Snow Hill Ridge, fall from the conduit prone to Holborn Bridge, sweeping from butchers' stalls, dung, guts and blood, drowned puppies, stinking sprats, all drenched in mud, dead cats and turnip tops come tumbling down the flood. So there we are, Sam. There is an 18th century depiction of a shower an immense shower of rain on a city and how all the people you know expect it and then how they deal with it how they hide from the rain and how you stay at home all those sort of things there's a real sort of you know everyday life sort of depiction of of an 18th century city stung by rain but what i'm interested in is these phrases about raining cats and dogs that we have here and the sense there is that it's raining so hard that actually it's drowning puppies and dogs um i don't think that uh, this is where the uh, the saying uh, raining cats and dogs comes from um and it got me thinking i was reading a brilliant book word origins and how we know them etymology for everyone by Anatoly Lieberman. And this is a wonderful uh, book. I recommend that you should all uh, have a look at it. Um, it, it. He deals there with how, um, with etymology and how words come into being and how, um, how phrases um, change their meaning over time. And with this, with this phrase, it's raining cats and dogs, he starts by thinking about how phrases like this come into being. It may be that they are, you know, that it's a, it's a foreign phrase 
that is that is very common. It's repeated all the time. It's translated verbatim, so it's translated literally, which basically turns it into gibberish. So that's one possibility with this. Second is that um, with this is that meanings may have changed themselves over time. In other words, um, reigning cat, cat, cats and dogs reigning or reigning cats and dogs maybe meant something related to superstition or practices in the past, which we now don't know. So it's a forgotten fact, superstition or custom. Um, now, I want to, to go on from here to think about some of the sort of different theories that he puts for uh, the, the derivation of reigning cats and dogs. There's one case that says it's all about Nordic. Um, so the source for reigning cats and dogs is Nordic. Allegedly, in Norse mythology, cats were supposed to have great influence on the weather, he writes. Dogs were a, a, a signal of wind and cats were a symbol of heavy rain. Um, but he argues that this can be connected to that this can be connected to Odin, the storm god, who's represented by, you know, blasts of wind. Um, the dog is attendant upon him, um, but basically argues that this isn't, you know, this isn't the, the case, that Odin is basically followed by flying corpses uh, rather than cats and dogs. So the, the idea that this English idiom uh, is traced to Scandinavian roots and Scandinavian oral tradition isn't one that he, that he that he agrees with. The other possibility is in fact that it is a corruption in the 19th century of a foreign Greek phrase, the phrase katadoxa, uh, which means contrary to expectation. So it's raining cats and dogs contrary to expectation. The problem with this is that it actually doesn't, we actually don't know how that would translate into English or how that would come about in practice. So, for example, how did that phrase make its way into English? Was it uh, something that was fashionable in the universities, university wits? Did it have popular origins? There is really no evidence of this at all. And so, um, you know, the idea that it is Greek derivation, I think, also needs to be sort of uh, got away from um the the other um the other one that i'm that that is put forward the other version is put forward uh comes from a source um in the uh in in 1919 um there was someone wrote and i quote i think i have heard somewhere that this phrase is a corruption of tempo cattivo bad weather and that it was introduced into England by Nelson's sailors who had served in Italian waters. This came a few years before the completion of the OED. Um, and but again, this idea about about um, about it being bad weather. Again, there's no sort of there's no solid evidence for this. It's something that really makes no sense at all. The most ridiculous one, um, however, cut version comes from. Uh, the Netherlands and a scholar called John Bellenden Kerr, um, who wrote, uh, and I and I and I I quote here: "It rains cats and dogs. That is, the rain is violent and drives to the face. It rains cats and dogs. Um, this is a proper current <laughs> in the eyes. It, it is a thorough drive upon the eyes. It is as if." Its only object was our eyes, how properly it can beset one's eyes. The phrase is evidently jocular in both travesty and original, and evidently spoken by one who had been peppered by some driving storm of rain. Et het this it rain, pure, unmixed, proper, sheer. Es is is. Ketzer is the participle uh, present of Ketzen, Kitson to chase, to drive, on or after, to pursue, to hunt, do, ogs, de ogs, the eyes. Um, this is utter, <laughs> absolutely utter drivel. Absolutely utter drivel. Um, the most, um, the most uh, likely, however, uh, is referred to in a Notes and Queries article, 12th series, volume 4, 1918, in a piece uh, written by Any Toke. 
and he looks at a uh, 1592 sentence in the Oxford English Dictionary, category 17 it is. And the phrase is from Gabriel Harvey. Instead of thunderbolt shooteth nothing but dog bolts or cat bolts. And what the, the argument that he puts forward is that by the end of the 16th century, the phrase cats and dogs must have been known. Um, and that he quotes, dog bolts and cat bolts are terms still employed in provincial dialect to denote respectively the iron bolts for securing a door or gate and the bolts for fastening together pieces of timber. In other words, what we're say what it's saying is that it is raining so heavily that it is like really heavy pieces of door furniture uh, showering down on you. And this relate this also relates to a further um, uh, extension of this phrase, which is that it is raining cat bolts, dog bolts, and pitchforks. Um, so, <laughs> moving on from there, there are also a whole range of bizarre expressions in different languages for heavy rain. In Afrikaans, it is raining old women with clubs. In Albania, uh, it is rain, rain is falling like ropes. Um, another one is God is taking a piss or God is crying. Um, in, in Cantonese, uh, it's raining dog's poo. Uh, or in Chinese, it's raining out of basins. Uh, I'll look for some of my fun, my favourites here. Uh, in Danish, um, it is shoemaker's apprentices. It's raining shoemaker's apprentices. In Dutch, uh, it's raining old women, uh, or it's raining pipe stems or stair rods. Um, it's also, it's raining kittens. Um, in Finnish, it's raining as if poured from a bucket. In French, it's raining like a peeing cow. That's one of my favourites there. Um, in, in Hindi, raining like a pestle onto a mortar. In Icelandic, like poured from a bucket. Uh, Japanese, earth and sand distending. Um, Italian, poured from a basin. Latvian, it's raining like from buckets. Um, what other words? Um, in Portuguese, it's raining snakes and lizards. Um, in Punjabi, <laughs> rain that beats kids. Uh, in Romanian, it's raining frogs. Um, uh, where else? In um, in Spanish, um, it's not only is it raining a lot, but it's also cold and windy that being hit by the drops hurts. Um, in Spanish, toads and snakes. Uh, another one in, in Argentina, pieces of dung head first. Um, in Colombia, it's raining husbands. Uh, another one in Swedish, it's raining small nails. The rain stands like canes hitting the ground. Um, and in Ukrainian, uh, it's pouring like from a bucket. Uh, and in Welsh, old ladies and sticks. So there we are, Sam. Um, <laughs> from <laughs> I love it. it from brilliant. Jonathan Swift to uh, raining cats and dogs. It makes me, um, we did our, our podcast, I think my favourite ever episode on the history of nonsense, and it did remind me of that. I think we should we should go back and or do gibberish, maybe. Uh, because Yes, uh, definitely. That's, that's another good one. Um, well done, everyone. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, I would just add that if you're interested in rain and the First World War, you could do uh, no, no worse than studying the history of the Passchendaele Offensive. Uh, which is there, there's, 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 there's something, there's a military campaign which was ruined by rain for you. Um, so do make sure you, you investigate that. I hope you've enjoyed it. I, I had a whole piece prepared on on um, singing in the rain, Sam. I don't have time to go into oh. it now, but I was really interested in how they actually got that rain scene to work. And apparently what they did was they blacked out, you know, two whole, two whole streets uh, in Hollywood to film this. And it was a time of a drought... And the um, and Gene Kelly had a roaring temperature, was really ill, and they made him uh, rehearse this or perform it for about two to three days. He was really ill with it, um, and they were worried that the rain wouldn't show up uh, when they actually filmed it. Um, but um, and there was a, a theory that actually what they did was they put milk in the um it mixed in with the with the water to make it show up on on camera but that's actually an, an urban myth 
and in fact it was the backlighting that allowed it to be seen. So there we are, Singing in the Rain, uh, one of my favourite movies of all time. I love that. Um, Guys, if you want more of our our gibberish and nonsense and thoughts, do please uh, check out uh, us online. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea, maritime history, please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media, on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so like us there. Uh, If you want to become a patron, uh, head over to Patreon and we have a Histories of the Unexpected Patreon account and anything you can do to help us change the way in which you think about the past would be most most appreciated and finally oh, you can check out everything that we're doing on our website historiesoftheunexpected.com including uh, signed books uh, just in time for Christmas wonderful Christmas present that's it guys we're going to be back with debt and squids <laughs> which is going to be really good see you soon bye bye take care guys and stay dry Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.